You are now listening. You are now listening. You are now listening to the Black Male Educators Alliance podcast. Lifting our voices. Lifting our voices. Lifting our voices. Welcome uh, to the BMEA podcast, Lifting Our Voices. We are here recording at the Michigan Reading Association Conference uh, in Grand Rapids. Uh, how you guys doing? Wonderful. We nice uh, to be here. and we were real happy to have you. Um, well, I'm here with my co-host, uh, Dr. Curtis L. Lewis. Yes, sir. Um, the Honorable. Oh, here we go. Here we go. And here we go. Here uh, before we, go. we before we you know introduce our special guest, I want to check in with you. See how you're doing, man. Let me tell y'all something. I just drove through this like whiteout, <laughs> <laughs> so my body is still like. You know, I'm hyped, but I'm I'm very excited to be here. We have two wonderful, like, celebrating Women's History Month with yes. two wonderful, spectacular black women. I cannot wait. Friends to of the like, show. like, let you, they are friends of the show. They are friends. Yes. Before, during, and after the show. Yeah. So these are good people. I can't wait to, to dig in with them. But no, I'm doing well, man. I, um, Grand Rapids, yeah, they, they get that lake effect and it's, it's coming down out here. But I'm doing well. I'm doing well. How about yourself? I'm doing well as well. I, um, Happy that it's the weekend. I'm ready for it to get warm. The snow kind of like is damper in this spring. You know, spring. It's supposed to be spring solstice coming around, right? Yeah. Twenty first. Yeah. So, uh, but uh, you know, I'm still happy doing well. BMEA is doing well. Um, let's talk a little bit about that. Actually, for people who don't know, um, so organization, educational organization, looking to transform education um, for Black and Brown students. Uh, we do a, a bunch of different things. Uh, one of them do, being school partnerships. I'll let Dr. Lewis talk a little bit more about that. The other arm of our of our um, programming being our black male uh, mentoring program called Black Minds Math Leadership. And uh, that's what I've been doing my new work this year. Um, and it's been excellent. Uh, we're at a few schools. Um, so we have our high school boys mentoring our elementary and middle school boys um, through PBL experiences and through character development, really leadership in it. And it's been um had its challenges but it's been excellent right um and it's something new that's where the challenge comes from um but it's really exciting and um i think that what i've recognized through this working with math and i think everybody every teacher can is that reading comprehension is such an important part and we're going to talk about that today um and then we also have our teacher wellness and our principal wellness programs plc's one going on today yeah, we were right just now. talking about we got too much going on <laughs> right now we do we got a lot going on uh, right now for the six of us um but uh yeah so you want to learn more about our organization, blackmaleducatorsalliance.org, and we'll make sure we shout that out at the end. But let's get to the show. Yeah. Um, we're going to talk about the reading crisis here in Michigan, and I have our special guests who are going to talk more about themselves and also just address some of the topics we want to talk about today. So I'm going to go first with Mr. Meta Lilly, if you want to introduce yourself. Sure, thank you. Uh, and, and so we live in Michigan, so we've all been shocked, uh, even more so because we know it snows in, uh, in right. March, but we didn't expect this much snow. Right. <laughs> yeah. but you just all, hope it doesn't happen. Exactly. <laughs> we, we but, uh, but, but we're used to adversity. Yes. And when we have adversity, we find our best selves and then we keep right. soaring um, in the work. So uh, I'm Jametta Lilly and blessed to serve as the CEO of Detroit Parent Network. Uh, but I come into this network, this work, uh, with, you know, frankly over 30 years of working to educate and empower families and children so I've had uh, a lot of work uh, over the decades whether it's developing new programs working in Head Start programs both as a grantee director assistant director been a, a consultant both with the feds and working with foundations but no matter where I go whether it's in mental health whether it's in primary health or education 
the ingredient that is consistently missing is us to have an intentional engagement and empowerment of the parents as being fundamental mm -hmm. for how, in fact, we are going to help build up children. So uh, I always like to lead with that because it doesn't matter where you are and what you do. Right. All of our systems have been very inadequate mm -hmm. about right. how we are, how we train, how we engage, and really how much we are being accountable to parents for the work when we say, bring us your children, right? Mm -hmm. Bring us your children. Mm -hmm. uh, now you can go. <laughs> so mm. uh, I, I'm looking forward to this conversation mm. because because that kind of framework uh, helps to inform, I think, the conversation uh, that we're going to have and certainly what Detroit Parent Network has been doing the last several years uh, relevant to the third grade reading law and building up literacy as liberation. Oh. Like that. Let's go. All right, look, this like is going to be good today. Go. All right, let's yes, go. Yes. All right, let's go. We also have Dr. Erica Robertson. Can you please introduce yourself to the group? Yeah, well, thank you guys for having me again. I remember the last time we were together, yeah. uh, I think we were uh, started out with a very important topic of is hot dog a sandwich? We did. Oh, we did. You remember that? We yeah. Did. We did. We did. Yeah. So I, was, I was looking forward to this. It's taco a sandwich. It's taco a sandwich. That's the, that's the one for the. What we found is when you look at sandwich, it is two pieces of something enclosing meat or a, right? Mm -hmm. a yeah. yeah. Right. So in that case, again, I would say taco isn't a sandwich, but I'm glad you guys have me back. Yeah. <laughs> And I'm so excited to be sitting with you guys. I follow the amazing work that you do in our past cross because we're all in this educational space trying to do what's best for our kids. And I'm excited to sit beside my friend, my colleague, and collaborator um, to uh, talk about uh, reading and reading literacy and how important it is. So Dr. Erica Robertson, uh, currently CEO of Little Black Girl Adventures Publishing House. Uh, I come by the way of... Um, being a superintendent over a school district and pre-K through eight school district for the last few years uh, and in education leadership um, for several years and then philanthropy around education at the Detroit Children's Fund. So really uh, intimately um, uh, involved, interested, and um, uh, intrigued about how we come together to, to solve this problem. When we talk about Michigan, and that's important to us, and then if we hone in Detroit, because we're all uh, from Detroit, um, but more importantly, I mean, it's a national crisis. Right. It's a national crisis, and our kids aren't um, able to access the levels of learning and skills that they need to be successful. Um, and in part, I, I look at uh, education as a triad. It's a partnership um, right. between the teacher, the parent, and the child. And so we talk a lot about the teacher having the skills and the content that they need in order to elevate the, the, the student. We talk a lot about the students having content, and we'll talk about some of that today. Mm -hmm. Some, but we often forget to talk about the parent, that they have the tools they need. Right? And it's not just saying, hey, here's, here's little um, Mike's homework, but it's like, hey, this is how you can use this tool to help Mike with his homework. Absolutely. We often forget about that. Right. We forget about partnering with them, like Jametta said, to take them along the journey. So really want to uh, highlight that today as we talk about the third grade reading law. And now that it has been repealed, and I won't, I won't steal the lead here, um, you know, how do we now use this momentum to engage family No, let's get into it. I'm yeah. glad. That's a perfect transition. Um, speaking about the, the third grade reading law, uh, for those who aren't aware, if a student tested uh, more than a grade level below, that they could be eligible for retention. Now, a lot of, there were a lot of 
a leeway given for students not to be retained, right? But still, there was you know overwhelming amount of students who were retained. A lot of them being black children disproportionately. So um, with the repeal, which I, I'm appreciative of, where do you see us going next to kind of like really, really uh, create some interventions for this reading, this this literacy issue? Yeah. So I, I think the appeal, um, the repeal, was inevitable. Right. That, that could not work. That wasn't sustainable. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we're all aware of that. Uh, Detroit Parent Network. We spent a couple of years. Uh, training up parents about what it means, uh, how to intervene, the, what is the IRIP. Um, so I think, frankly, it is kind of peeling back to what is it that we should have been doing all along. Mm. Uh, and so one of the very first things is how are we all of our systems and not just education because educators cannot build literacy by themselves mm -hmm. uh, as a system all of our systems working together to say that literacy tools um, how do we make sure that families have what they need to, to learn uh, but I, I do want to kind of put this out here when you ask about interventions I think one of the things that we have to face is in the country you said it um, Erica that this is a national crisis but functional illiteracy mm -hmm. amongst adults is a crisis. Mm -hmm. Right. And so if you take that reality, then you add the other reality is that many of our families have not had positive experiences in education. So when you add that together, uh, then you add the fact that we have institutionalized and ongoing racism, we have lack of access to the appropriate resources in our schools. That is a toxic brew that our babies are trying to come up in and be creative and learn in, and, and teachers are trying to help them. So but what I think one of the things that's important, even before getting to individual interventions, I think it compels us as educators, as change agents, no matter we are, we have to talk about those issues. Uh, how are we addressing the functional illiteracy piece to support parents and resources that they need? How do we then begin to change the paradigm in our school systems and take acknowledge that a lot of this stuff has been messed up? Let's be frank. And then how do we begin to fix it for these partnerships? And then thirdly, uh, addressing, which we see now, particularly with our governor and our lieutenant governor, huge amount of resources coming in to build up equity yeah. for school funding. So I think I just want to kind of start with those systems mm -hmm. issues first, and then I'm happy to get down into the details of it. But I know so often we, we, we go to the, the specific child level intervention, yeah, but absolutely. we forget we can help as many individual children, but we've got to also combat and advocate around the systems issues. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think when you talk about the systems, um, you have to look at and you talk about the uh, history um, of oppression in our communities, mm -hmm. right? Our marginalized communities and thinking about it from an equitable lens. Mm -hmm. And so the one thing that really uh, bothered me and a lot of um, uh, folks who were against third grade reading was the focus on the punitive nature of mm -hmm. the retention. Mm -hmm. uh, because based on looking at the data, and there was some data done by Epic, um, they did an evaluation um, of the um, first year, two years of the third grade reading law. And one of the findings that they found like overall 5.8% 5, 5 of third graders that were tested were eligible to be retained. But then if you looked at the mm -hmm. numbers and the disproportionality, um, the, there were notable disparities for, between black students. And black students were 4.5 times more likely to be eligible for retention than their mm -hmm. white counterparts. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about systems and you talk about uh, systemic racism, you talk about putting these policies in place, one of the reasons that uh, myself and a lot mm -hmm. of my colleagues, families, educators were glad to see it repealed was the focus on the punitive nature. 
The second component is when you looked at the what was laid out um, as kind of the roadmap, right? There was kind of these eight steps, mm -hmm. um, you know, for um, the third grade reading law when, when it was enacted. And you look at some of the steps about assessments, mm -hmm. you look at the steps about, um, you know, school notification, developing an individualized reading improvement plan. One of the one of the areas as a superintendent that I know that really uh, where we, we fall short is we're always reactive and then it becomes punitive yeah. versus being proactive and then it becomes a solution. Mm -hmm. So everything that they laid, I like a lot of the steps that they laid out in, in the law with the interventions, right? The fact that mm -hmm. we're getting more money, but that should not be if your child is assessed, that should be for all children, right? 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 We should assume coming in right. our children are blank slates and we should be um, spending more instructional hours on reading and having our teachers skilled as reading interventionists so that it's not a specialty to pull out. All teachers should be able to be equipped to teach reading. They do a great job in the classroom and I found that the teachers who have the skill set to really understand how to teach reading are the ones that excel and the kids they do the best. Yeah. No, absolutely. And no, go ahead, go ahead, go sure. ahead. <laughs> no, I mean, I think you, well, you guys brought up some really great points, but um, to your point about the punitive part, I think that schools get it punished when students don't do well and students are not doing well because of equity issues, right? Or, you know, and then they go further down the line, right? And obviously, you know, black and brown students feeling the brunt of that. And we've all just talked about it, like oftentimes in these homes, those are the same children of parents who haven't had success in schools, right? So then there's a disconnect between the family and the school, and then there's a disconnect at home, like what needs to happen to help support this literacy. And then I also wanted to bring up and ask you guys' opinion, like since the pandemic, we've seen the numbers drop. So reading was an issue. Now it's more of an egregious issue. Um, and the teacher crisis, I don't call it a shortage because I think this crisis has been happening for quite some time, has just been amplified by that. And so like, how do we, how, what is our plans to really prepare for the outcomes if we haven't really stopped the bleeding of like what's happening with our, our teacher crisis? Right. You know, I was looking at a RAND survey um, that was done in the fall of last year. And out of uh, all the teachers surveyed, 42% the teachers said that they were considering leaving the profession. Oh, yeah. 42%. Yeah. And that was done by the Brookings Institute. Yeah. Um, and so part of what we have to do, and this we knew this before the pandemic. Right. right? There was a teacher crisis before correct. the pandemic. Right, correct. Um, and part of what the issue um, around that component is, in my opinion, and based on data, uh, is that one, we have to um, rebrand and reposition the profession. Mm. Right, teaching is one of the yes. most valuable oh professions there is, but yet they're one of the, the most underpaid professions that there is. And so part of what we have to figure out, and I think that our current Secretary of Education, Cardona, is on the right track, is how do we um, value our teachers, you know, monetarily, because they have to eat, right? Mm. Making sure that the, the profession is elevated. Uh, so that it becomes attractive and you can feed yourself and your family while you're trying to teach others. Correct. But then how do you also um, elevate the role, um, provide the professional development, provide the support, provide the uh, opportunity to have your tuition reimbursed, right? So these are some of the things that are being laid out on the federal level that then are being expanded to the state level. But we have to figure out how can we elevate the profession of teachers um, both as, as a uh, prestigious role to have. We need to pay our teachers 
uh, based on their value, and their value is educating our future leaders, right? And then we need to make sure that we're supporting them through that journey with the funding um, that's necessary to make education uh, just as valuable as this, the money we spend on defense. Yeah. So yeah. I, I think In fact, it is a form of defense. Exactly. Because exactly. uh, ignorance... Absolutely. Ignorance creates a whole nother set of scenarios. I, I would just like really want to underscore appreciation for your raising the importance of education. Yeah. And and let us not forget that the, uh, particularly for African Americans, it's a long history of the development of, of black institutions and education and educators that unfortunately you don't see being lifted up now. And Correct. so many of us that are HBCU grads in here mm -hmm. or grew up in homes where there were where education was always valued. And let me say this is really important, even when I talked about functional illiteracy in the beginning, it's really the belief in education. Mm -hmm. You do not have to be a scientist to raise the next astronaut or the next MD. It's how much you believe and support and create an environment of love, belief, and opportunity. The other thing I think is important for us not to lose, go back to the question, what is our reality now coming out of COVID? So COVID just ripped off for anybody who was blind to whatever were the disparities that existed. Uh, they're, they're glaring. And we went from having summer slide and summer loss to now we've had a tsunami, literally tsunami of learning losses, but also profound social, emotional and mental health impact right. on our children, on our families. And people are fatigued at a level that I'll be really frank, I have no idea of because we're just seeing the surface of that. Uh, I just recently have been looking at the increases in our abuse and neglect data. So neglect has always been much higher than abuse, but now we're beginning to see more of it. So this is these are tips of the iceberg. And I want to pivot this back to the education part of it. We're seeing increases in suicide in populations that didn't exist before. Mm -hmm. We already know that throughout not only Detroit, Michigan, Flint, all around the country, everybody's saying, where are the kids? What's happening? We've opened the schools back up, but where are the children? And then we can't find the parents. So this really speaks to some real breakdowns in our individual communities, mm -hmm. in our schools. But here's what I think is so important. We can't look at this only as a school issue. So even if we, if we paid teachers $100,000 for startup tomorrow, it would not change the dynamics of what children are entering those classrooms with mm -hmm. and what they go back to. So we have to have a holistic approach of how we are giving families and communities the resources, and particularly because we know brain development, it shows us clearly that we learn more in those first three years of mm -hmm. life than ever again. So it doesn't matter how many PhDs did you have, let's mm -hmm. get them, but mm -hmm. we learn so much more then. And mm -hmm. what are we doing for our three, four, and five-year-olds so that when you do have that, that new, that teacher who's excited and got the skills, know how to teach reading, but if, if, if you know, to Mika and Sharon and Cheryl and Michael are hungry or have a, a household where here, this is scary, that they've lost their mama, they've lost a, a, a sibling to COVID and have never had a place to grieve and talk about that.
So I'm only saying that to say, which probably is obvious, but it, it means that we have to begin to hit pause and come together as educators, yeah. uh, folks in mental health, behavioral health, primary health, and say, how do we work together? Because the wound is much deeper than we what we may even know. And for many of us who are, think we're resilient, I mean, we're carrying some of our own stuff too. Yeah. You yeah. know, I can think about it as a leader, I, bringing my team through COVID, uh, my deaths in my own family. Who's had a chance to, to stop and breathe? We have to keep moving. But not everybody has that. So let's come together across systems to talk about this so we can make sure that the teachers who are ready, who have the reading, um, who understand the science of reading, can actually actually implement it. And how do we make sure that we're talking about literacy and all the way from birth forward? I think it's really important as well. Oh man, you said you said a lot, and and I and I, I do want to sort of dig in a little bit to like how and what does that look like. Before we do that, though, I do want to acknowledge we got a couple of people out here. If you got a cough, cough, <laughs> don't choke. <laughs> All right, I appreciate that. I just want to put that out there. I'm that guy in the podcast, but just break things up a little bit. So cough. <laughs> no, I saw her. I was like, she's about like. So we do have a few folks out here in the audience. So. And if y'all have a question, also feel free to like shoot your hand up as well. Okay, so just just know y'all can cough, you can you know sneeze for sure. All right, or if you have a question, yeah. feel free to do it. But let's dig in a, a little bit to like what does that look like, right? So if we were to bring all these systems and all these folks together, let's you know let's imagine we got to start imagining for mm -hmm. things to happen, right? What would that look like? And I, you both can address that. Well, I, I I think we both are like itching to do this. I, I just gotta throw this out. So so one of the things is is that there there used to be this we all heard of twenty first century communities and schools, so we've heard this stuff. Hmm. But I think we have an exciting opportunity with the funding that's been made available through this administration of saying, how do we either look at having a more robust school-based health and wellness components right in the individual schools? And how do we link our pre-K community to, for particularly our K through three? Now, obviously, all of this affects the older children as well. But I'm just speaking for the moment because if you don't get those literacy skills yeah. in the beginning, yeah. then we know what happens. There's, yeah. there's more, there, you know, there, there are more uh, prison beds being created, Correct. right? Mm -hmm. So if we can if we can bring together those people and look at the models that actually already exist, mm -hmm. There are models that already exist that bring um, mental health folks, that bring uh, primary care and educators together, first identifying those children that may need the most attention as quickly as possible. So there are models like that that exist. That's number one I'm going to say. But two, we've got to break down the bureaucracy mm. that keeps those systems working almost in, 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 in juxtaposition to each other. Mm -hmm. So we, we have new opportunities for that. Uh, I know in, the, in Detroit, Dr. Vitti, uh, and I almost did a happy dance when he said, we're gonna have a school nurse in, in every place. Okay, so what does that nurse do? Mm -hmm. You know, so how do we begin to connect pediatricians and folks who do therapy and even in infant mental health therapy, all of that, how do we bring that together? And then how do we also create the space for parents to be able to have the things that they need so they see the school as not a resource just for their children but also for themselves. Yeah. So there are models like that. Um, and I'm happy to come back at another point, but I want to let people know that these things exist. Yeah. 
but it's got to be a multi-system approach. And in fact, if you if you search multi-system schools and early education mm-hmm. programs, we see what Dr. Kennedy did in Harlem and other yeah. places in New Orleans. Uh, there's some models out there for yeah, us. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Well, just to tag on to that, and I absolutely mm-hmm. agree. And I know mm-hmm. you and I think very much alike. So yeah. I, was, I, was, I was happy to see you. <laughs> I know we're both, we're both like, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I just, I'm going to just raise up a couple things that are really important because I, I do absolutely agree that it's, it, it, it will take a systems approach. It will take cross-sector. It will take mm-hmm. multi-systems. And I'm really happy. And again, I, I really just I kind of admire some of the work that our Secretary of Education has been doing and thinking and funding mental health and funding mm-hmm. depression and funding, right? And so I believe he's thinking that way. I believe our leaders here in the state mm-hmm. uh, are thinking that way and they're putting their resources, money behind that. So you see the budget, uh, proposed budget from uh, the governor, uh, the money that she mm-hmm. wants to put into K-12 education and not just um, schools, right? It's mm-hmm. systemic. Uh, I also think we have to figure out one of the things that um, we do know, especially in the communities that we serve, mm-hmm. right? We serve communities in high poverty areas. We do have to think about is what is our role as child advocates, as community leaders, mm-hmm. to help facilitate experiences, opportunities, and resources in partnership mm-hmm. with community to what, what Jametta was saying. One of the biggest um, uh, 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 unequitable practices I saw, you know, as a superintendent, uh, was you know after-school programming, which can be so enriching for our kids, whether it's academic, whether it's arts, whether it's sports, um, whether it has to do with nutrition. And one of the things that happens is it's really uh, a lot of times only those children whose parents have transportation, whose parents you know don't work two shifts or work the night shift have access to even you know off you know office hours after school to get extra help so how do we and this is some mm-hmm. work that we're doing, doing right and, mm-hmm. and dpn is spearheading and i'm excited to be a collaboration partner is how do we use after school time out of school time as a way to uh for family enrichment and support and then how do we use community assets that we do have to help infuse and fill those gaps so that you know um Little Mikey, if he wants to stay after school for an arts program, he's going to get a warm meal. Uh, He's going to get the enrichment he needs. And guess what? He's going to get a ride home. we got to start thinking systemically. And I think transportation is the next thing Mm -hmm. to start Mm -hmm. thinking about Mm -hmm. as a system for how we can break some of these barriers for our parents. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. uh, To your point, um, because I was thinking about what you were talking earlier about, just uh, connecting mental health and, and education. I think COVID exposed that school was operating like a business just as like you know next day next day you just got to keep going and kids and and teachers are like i think that's where you saw people like well i don't need to do this anymore i think kids were also feeling that way when they were at home it's like i don't need to do this anymore and like kids are going to school because they have to and so we expect like there's some sort of expectation like oh well you you know you want to go to school get your education but we know psychologically kids are not thinking down the line like that so right now i'm traumatized mm-hmm. i don't care about what's in front of me so i think when we see this drop it's not just because they lost this learning time in, in person but it's also because emotionally that kids are damaged right and we didn't address it i think that was cold as a as a nation as a community as a school community to not really address it like we like we say we were going to mm-hmm. we thought we were going to we didn't really address it and um and I see that with high school as well, where it's like kind of just going through the motions and like kids are unmotivated. And, and our, our mentoring program after school, 
which it, it has a math component, which is our focus, but the the wellness component is the wellness. Yeah, is we sometimes we don't have, even have a chance to get to the math because that's when we hear them their voice the most. That's when they talk the most. That's when they're interact. That's when they're asking questions because they have questions. They have feelings too. That. Isn't doesn't have any space in school, and that doesn't make any sense for a child that's trying to like learn about themselves or trying to try to learn the world when it's just like, oh, I'm just receiving information mm -hmm. in the context of whatever this class is, but I'm not having any opportunity to kind of like work through what I'm feeling or work through what's happening in this in this space. And you know, it's so funny because if I was looking at some of the questions you had for today, and you were talking about reimagining school, mm -hmm. right? And so part of really reimagine and a lot of people use that word right yeah but we really just tweaking it here tweaking it here but if you really want to think about what reimagining school looks like how do we peel back this traditional way that kids are in classrooms they're sitting and getting and going home mm -hmm. they're not being nourished necessarily socially emotionally mentally how do you combine that with how do you combine making space for resiliency mm -hmm. how do you combine that with with also uh, truly educating and engaging kids in a way that they're learning because if we go back to the uh, read by uh, grade three law part of the problem with that is it's a uh, uh, it was punitive in nature it was one high stakes test that then determined mm -hmm. if it mm -hmm. read or not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. this is it's, it's like it was history repeating itself this is the same thing that happened with no child left behind right. it was one high stakes test right that 100% of you know American children would be proficient by yeah. third grade and it was a big failure so yeah. we keep repeating the same thing hoping to get the results so how do we truly ima reimagine our education systems where you can go into a school you can be nourished both physically both mentally spiritually academically how do you demonstrate and then how do you like embed that nourishment those learnings into the curriculum so it's not a standalone, it's part of what you do, it's part of how you learn. How you learn is through that social emotional development. How you learn is through nourishing your mind, your body and spirit. And then how do you demonstrate that in a way that shows that you are developing as a whole child? And so one of the, the ideas, right, that I think we need to start grappling with as a nation is looking at how we're actually determining if our kids are proficient. We say we want to develop these global citizens, but yet we're still teaching them and testing them like they work in a factory. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? So you need to have the same level of assessments, like, and I know some countries are doing portfolio style assessments, mm -hmm. where a child does writing, right, mm -hmm. making a presentation, mm -hmm. demonstrate proficiency and all these. So part of it, part of what we have to think about, if we really want to reimagine education is how do we just throw out the old playbook and how do we really put in a new playbook for children designed by children mm -hmm. there was a quick there was a survey done um, a child survey done one of the largest surveys by National uh, Boys and Girls Club of America where they had ch their children's voice in the survey of how they wanted to learn mm -hmm. what was impacting them yeah. And they had more to say about the feelings they had, the support they need about dealing with those feelings, how to engage with each other. They felt they felt um, um, uh, antisocial, right? They felt left out. So I just think that right now we're like at a place where we do have an opportunity to truly rethink how we're educating and engaging our kids. But then also it goes back to our educators too. So we talk about teachers, right? Mm -hmm. How do you get teachers? Teachers want to be inspired to teach. And absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Why not? You know, so I think as we think about this, we can really create a shift that's really reimagining how we take care of the whole person, mm -hmm. the educator and the child. Right. Mm -hmm.
And of course, you know that I'm going to add that third that third will, mm-hmm. the family. The family. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 The, Absolutely. The, the family in there. Um, so you asked the question about interventions and, and, and ditto what you said, Erica, about re- not only reimagining, but specifically saying, how do we build on the things that we know work? We, we know interaction and creativity, building critical thinking skills, and but how you do it and what the focus is and making sure they're culturally competent. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the other piece that is so important. I, I think the other thing that we know from that third grade reading law, there were nuggets that never got developed. So we actually have the opportunity to go back and say, okay, so one of the things that should happen is assessment. But we can do things that are assessing children in a dynamic way that are culturally competent, that are inclusive and not uh, diminishing children and making them feel bad because they had to go through that. But yes, you know, I say, we say to parents, we do have to assess. What you have to do is look at the assessment tool and process, but we have to assess. Right. I think the other thing that's important is that within that that law, it talked about tutoring. So one of the things I've we got some real concerns about, um, popular literature says, just read to your children. We got that. But the reality is just reading to your children doesn't necessarily, it may help them, it may build relationship and mm-hmm. bonding, it may build their hearing and vocabulary, but it doesn't necessarily put them on the path to real reading. So what parents need to be aware of is that there are evidence-based tutoring programs. We know that high dosages of quality tutoring mm-hmm. in school, preferably, or out of school in some kind of organized, but just because it's organized doesn't mean it's not fun, right. that we mm-hmm. need to have organized ways for parents and children to continually be learning. And yes, one of the things we're excited about with DPN is I work with the Skillman Foundation and also with Kellogg about how do we help parents be involved in being advocates for these changes. So we need to have more high dosage tutoring. And that tutoring, by the way, uh, contrary to people think, we can train up our community to be our next generation of teachers. So we train at DPM parents to become literacy assistants and mm-hmm. put them on the pathway to believe in their possibilities. So maybe they go back and get a child development associate. Maybe they go back and get that 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 you know that that assistant degree. So we have to be more intentional. Uh, and the more that parents and community folks, those who've been bruised by the system, can meet can meet. You brothers that are part of BMEA who can meet, um, you know, sisters like Erica who have been traveled the world and has titles of superintendent and then say, oh, wait a minute. I value who she is. I want to be that. Mm-hmm. We need to tell those stories and create that imagery back to our community and then empower them with the information and tools so they can be advocates, particularly around this issue about high dosage tutoring because we know it makes a difference and we've got to hold the schools accountable for the money that they've getting literally the gazillions of dollars uh, mm. the michigan partnership for equity and opportunity which is bipartisan just share very quickly is that what we've been saying there's four critical things have got to happen not only for equitable funding for black and brown children for for um, uh, children who are at risk and children with you know english as a second language and special needs children we're also saying there's got to be transparency and accountability. Yeah. And when we look at the, uh, literally nationally, um, the billions that have been put out there, we've got to do a better job to make sure that those dollars are going to the children and going to support the teachers so that we're building the system and, and, the, and the intelligence and the competency we need because the money's going to go away in two or three years. 
mm-hmm. there's work we can be doing right now and high doses tutoring is part of that uh, making sure that there's opportunities for parents for after school programming where the young people themselves help to develop that in partnerships and helping develop new models this is work we can be doing right now and I think there's a lot of if, if educators look in their communities uh, look at the programs that that they may not have known about before mm-hmm. and those programs are going to the schools knocking hard on the door because sometimes folks at schools don't answer we need to knock hard because <laughs> all these kids are whose kids they're our okay. kids so that's some of the things I think are so important from an intervention standpoint so I know we, you know, running short of time. And I know we can, man, y'all, <laughs> we're, we're, we're going. I, I did have a question. And then I do want y'all to, I don't know if Payne have another question for y'all to kind of talk about the work that y'all are doing. I know you're doing some work around, you know, children literature. I know you're doing the work with Detroit Parent Network. So I have a question in regards to the amount of brothers, um, men mm-hmm. that are engaged in the work that you're doing. Is there, a, you know, enough a lot talk a little bit about that because i think there's an opportunity for us to support you and the work you're doing because you a lot of things sparks went off in my brain like oh we should be supporting this work for sure so go ahead yeah so i'm just gonna drop a little bit of data you guys like receipts we like receipts absolutely we like receipts this is a session i'm doing a little bit later uh about equipping my fathers with the tools they need to catalyze the growth of those children but um Two interesting statistics. Um, right now, 1.3% of all black male educators, there's only 1.3% black male educators. Mm-hmm. 1.3%. Mm-hmm. However, right now, fathers are represented in 69.3% of our homes. Mm-hmm. Black fathers. Mm-hmm. Okay. So part of the conversation we've been talking about is putting all of the onus just on educators mm. right but we have a whole cadre of fathers right that can advocate and really engage with their children if they have the right tools to help them mm. so part of the work is engaging right them in a way mm-hmm. that's meaningful and providing them with the right tools the right opportunities supporting and uplifting them in their role in helping shape their children mm-hmm. so i do think there is enough black males now and i don't believe that they have to be in education mm-hmm. they don't have to be teachers although i support that too mm-hmm. because there's another data point that demonstrates that um the uh asian asian teachers male teachers right are underrepresented as well but their children have some of the highest performance rates mm-hmm. that's because of the culture that's culture in the home mm-hmm. so we have enough 69.3 percent households are represented by black males right are, are have black male representation mm-hmm. we need to figure out how to get into those homes help engage those fathers in schools in their children's education in a meaningful way give them the tools and uplift them and let them help lead this yeah, I, I'm appreciative of you sharing that data uh, because generally speaking, particularly when it comes to African Americans, the data that people pay the most attention to is in some communities is as high as 80 to even 85% of our single parent households. Mm-hmm. 
but a single parent household does not mean that there's an absence Absolutely. of the father or Absolutely. other critical men that are so important to the development of the whole Absolutely. child you know so we know that black and brown communities function within a multi-generational context mm-hmm. m- more often um, but I think the other piece is so interesting is in education and, and having you know had those courses and we look at where we are it's very female centric mm-hmm. mm-hmm. uh, they are not environments that even are welcoming mm-hmm. to men mm-hmm. and I think that that requires a women that we and, and and professionals that we are kind of taking a step back to say and to listen to BMEA and other groups to say well wait a minute how do we change the very sense of what is welcoming to men yes. of different ages and backgrounds to be a part of what we want to do because so often when men do approach us in our programming same thing in social work behavioral mm-hmm. health everywhere else you know it's, it's an automatic kind of perception about you're the absent dad you're the this or your, your hair doesn't look the way I think it should or your clothes mm-hmm. so on and so forth <laughs> but the reality is, is so we have some work to do mm-hmm. to create an atmosphere that says inherently you are critical you are vital and you are welcome to the not only the table to the world and you are are absolutely critical for the growth and development of our community. I think we have to say that more. Um, now, so how do we do that? So DPN has had a program called uh, Men of DPN. And I'm really pretty excited because uh, there's a rumor that maybe up the road, Detroit Parent Network and BEMEA might be working together. Yeah. 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 It's coming down right, the road. Right, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm fishing. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. I'm yeah, fishing, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, we're but seriously. <laughs> Uh, and, and, and just to share with you how it's functioned in the past, very much like our mommy to mommy group, is that we try to do is facilitate an environment. Not It's more of a support group mm-hmm. where we, we are always providing information and resources. That's number one. But we also solicit the group. What are the topics that you think are important? And then what we do is get other what I call trusted voices to be at the part of the conversation. This was so important with COVID. So one of the things we did with the Racial Disparities Task Force, we know that the messenger matters, right? So it's the same thing whether we're talking about COVID, get your vaccines, etc. When we start talking about our children and we talk about the the future for for families, uh, we need to make sure that those are in fact credible black men who are at the table helping to lead the conversation. And then creating the space for them to come together. So we're looking to try to start that again. Um, and those can be support groups. They can be at DPN. Uh, we always provide some food for those conversations. You know, that's essential. That's and in, in, in the environment that is comfortable. Um, and in our work with faith-based programs, we call them powerful parent hubs. Mm-hmm. We're looking to partner with churches in particular to say, how might we take these approaches of the men of DPN, the mommies? to mommy group which by the way uh, last year we had moms say honey we, we can't meet at 6 o'clock we gotta meet at 9 o'clock after I put the kids to, to bed these women were so intent that they had mm. developed all new relationships they were meeting and they called the program Mommies After Dark oh so think about that. That says mm-hmm. that these folks found this level of support. So we're looking for a similar kind of approach. But that's just our small approach. Mm-hmm. But we want to say to the larger community, how do we make sure, whether it's our fraternities, our sororities, and everybody else, that we're creating the spaces in particular because we're so fractured. Um, the media and others and a different a whole array of historical things have kept 
people and men and women not talking to each other, yeah. engaging each other in a way of caring and love and respect. So we, the only way we can change that is to get intentional. And by doing that, we set a whole new example for our children. Because mm-hmm. violence, um, self-harm are, are realities in our communities at all levels, across all races. But we can begin to talk about that, I think, by building up and loving on uh, you know, black men in particular, creating opportunities for black women in their spaces, and doing that not only within our community, but also engaging others. And by doing that, our children begin to have a whole new resource available for them as well. And so I'll, I'll just tag on to that because we talk about what we're doing and, um, you know, part of the learning we've been talking about this whole time is engaging, mm-hmm. engaging our families and then engaging in content and experiences um, uh, with characters um, that look like them, yeah. right? Absolutely. And so part of what I've been doing uh, with um, a Little Black Girl Adventures Publishing House, uh, you know, we say we're about developing a healthy whole child through literacy, languages, laughter, and love. And we have just a, a lot of amazing content and characters. Three things I want to lift: the diversity of our content. Like this is Little Danny, mm-hmm. right? So Little Danny, I love Little Danny. Little yeah. Danny, little brown boy, right? And so he's five, and he can't find his socks, mm-hmm. right? And so the thing is uplifting these little characters, and he's a, a genius at math, right? He loves math and loves science, but he doesn't quite know shapes and colors, right? And so what this does is it gives our kids uh, characters to relate to. That, say, that affirms what their strengths are, but mm-hmm. also say, hey, we all need help. Mm-hmm. So Little Debbie needs help finding his sock and it takes him on a journey. But if we lift up it more broadly, the different characters um, and the different just methodology and lens that I have in thinking through what it is that uh, Little Black Girl Adventures is trying to accomplish, it really is, um, I'll take after uh, Rudine Sims Bishop, who said mm-hmm. that um, you know books can serve as sliding doors uh, wind and windows. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would just add to that, it could also be, I call it blue skies. Um, uh, I, what was my, oh, I had one, it was really good too. It was, uh, <laughs> uh, it was uh, blue skies, um, uh, sunshine, and trampolines, right? Yeah. And so part of the blue sky thinking in business is like when you think about blue sky, anything is possible. So part of the work that I'm doing is trying to share with our young people that's anything is possible. Mm. And you can look at yourself in any kind of way and rewrite your narrative. Um, And part of that leads into a whole piece around their health, but around this whole peace education that I find that I think is very empowering. If I had to give my my life a tagline uh, and what I'm trying to accomplish, it would say, my, I want to do my part in healing the fabric of our communities. And that takes a focus on literacy, it takes a focus on health, and it takes a focus on peace. Mm-hmm. And so part of the work we're doing also is, is showing that our kids are superheroes and highlighting their superpower. And it doesn't have to necessarily be a superpower where you can break down doors with your eyes. But your um, math skills, your literacy skills, your ability to communicate and empathize, those are skills that you can use to change the game. So what I'm trying to do is really create content that allows our kids to see themselves um, as superheroes, see their, their, their skills as superpowers, and how they engage and interact uh, with the world. And then the special thing that I, I, I like to um, highlight is I want to also create these tools for parents to help use this content to help their kids comprehend and read. 
And so I call it powered by parents, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a, a, a theory called design justice. Mm -hmm. Nothing for us without mm -hmm. us, right? So how do we design these learning journeys, these learning experiences with parents and give them tools that they can use so that they feel confident when they do go home, they know how to educate their parents. So I'm really excited about just jumping in. I, I literally just jumped into this um, in February. I've had it around for about uh, three years and had some small books. So we have four, um, four books out now, three early readers, one novel, which is my flagship book, The Adventures of a Little Black Detroit Girl. Uh, we have seven more early readers and lit kits set to uh, drop this year. And so just really excited about engaging families, engaging parents, engaging kids and to, to really see themselves show up in content uh, that's exciting, that's aspiring, um, and that will really help them change, be change agents in their communities. You know, so you can imagine how excited I am about this. If I roll back the clock, you know, back to when I was a, a child, I can remember my father making a very intentional decision, he and my mom, about what books that they mm -hmm. would show me. Uh, I just happened to have been born in, in India. And I'll never forget my father telling me the story of when we came back to the States. And I was about, not quite four years old, and I got planted in front of a TV. And I was almost totally mesmerized. And, and he, he was a, a college prof and had very uh, prolific language. But sometimes, you know, Fifth Ward, Houston would pop out too. And he called my mother and said, look at this, all this crap that she is mesmerized by. And he said, you know what I did? I immediately went out, and it didn't even matter. He, we already had Langston Hughes in the household, but he said, i got to get pictures of Langston. So he began to very purposely make sure that the images that I was being fed with the books were looking like me. Mm -hmm. And what... What was just attested to that Erica is talking about how important it is. Um, we're embarking on a, a wonderful activity with five other organizations. Uh, at the end of this month, we are celebrating uh, Black children's books, right. and not only are we celebrating Black children's books, we're celebrating Black publishers like uh, Dr. Robertson yeah, and Black great. authors and publishing companies like Lotus and Broadside Press. And for those of you who may be familiar, one of the uh, the noted poets from Broadside Press, uh, Hakima the Booty, or also Don Ely, he said, if you control the mind, if you can control the mind, you get it through by controlling the images. So imagery is so important. So we're, we're going to have a, a yeah. wonderful celebration of books. Uh, families can come in the old-fashioned style, bring your children. We're going to have food. Uh, we're going to have an opportunity to lift that up. But what we're trying to do is that uh, the United Way of Southeast Michigan, uh, Birdie's Bookmobile, the Detroit Library, um, 313 Reads, which is looking at how do we improve uh reading proliferation and proficiency across the city and brilliant Detroit. So, and of course, Detroit Parent Network, we're all coming together to say, let's create events in the community uh -huh. that are accessible to families, give them, as Eric is saying, give them tools, give them books, the things that look like them. And I got to tell you this, at our last member mixture, this is something we do every month, we had three white families attend. Two of them had, had contacted and they were on the Zoom and another white family came. And so I just kind of asked them, so how did you hear about us? Well, we saw it on Facebook. And, and what was so important to me in this is because this conversation, we have folks in this country who want to burn books. 
who want to ban books, who want to say our history doesn't matter. We have to make sure and welcome that we need to have white folks and other people learning the history in particular of African Americans and indigenous people because we live in this country together and our images and our stories are so important. So this is something that we see as being like the vanguards of talking about black children's books are really important for actually, we think, a way of changing the minds of people, not only changing hearts and giving them information, and by the same token, doing some economic development by supporting those businesses, those authors, and those uh, illustrators. So join us on March the 31st. Yeah. Uh, 43730 at 726 Lothrop uh, for a uh, Black Children's Book Celebration and Festival. So we're excited. And of course, uh, Dr. Robertson is going to be there with her books, with parents giving input on how we can make sure the images and material that's very unique that she's doing, how can we make sure that it's very accessible to parents? And hands-on activities, right? That's yeah. Hands-on activities. These book comes with activities like little buy-in. They're juicing. So we're mm -hmm. juicing with mm -hmm. With parents and yep. with kids. And I just want to close this segment out with a quote, if, if I may. Absolutely. So I referenced um, Rudine Sims, uh, who's a historian. She's a professor uh, emeritus at uh, Ohio uh, and a child advocate. And she says here, she says, books are sometimes windows offering views of worlds that may be real or imagined, familiar or strange. These windows are also, also sliding doors, and readers have only to walk through in imagination to become part of whatever world has been created or recreated by the author. When lighting conditions are just right, however, a window can be a mirror. Literature transforms human experiences and reflects it back on us, and in that reflection we can see our own lives and experiences as part of the larger human experience. Reading then becomes a means of self-affirmation, and a reader often sees their mirrors in the books. The last thing she said here, which is very profound, she said, when children cannot find themselves reflected in books they read, or when the images they see are distorted, negative, or laughable, they learn a powerful lesson about how they are devalued in society mm -hmm. uh, of which they are a part. Our classrooms need to be places where all children from all cultures that make up the salad bowl of American society can find their mirrors. And that's what we're trying to do. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's a perfect way to end. Yeah. I love this has been great. That's it wonderful. Has. This, I can literally sit here and like listen to, them. Fight, listen to y'all like all day. Yeah. <laughs> this is probably the, the quietest I've been in all of our podcasts. Well, nothing like, to say though. I mean, I agree with everything. Yeah, I'm just like. <laughs> Yeah. So we got Amen Corner on both Amen. sides. Oh, right, there absolutely. we go. There we go. Absolutely. Right, right. Yes. I just love it that you guys had us, but I love yes. that you guys keep putting out great content yes. and great conversations, yep. pushing the conversation. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. You need great black voices, black male leaders to really mm -hmm. be a forefront. And I think for us at Little Black Girl Adventures, we say we uplift our little black and brown boys mm -hmm. to make sure that we can also give them a platform. Absolutely. So absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining. Absolutely. Um, before we close, is there any questions? We good with questions? Absolutely. What's your name? Uh, Julie Carr. Julie Carr, nice to meet you. What, what district do you represent? Um, 
we work for a virtual school that um, uh -huh. is officially a Michigan Virtual Charter Academy. Um, okay. We're our own district. Yeah, we're all. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. My son is actually a Michigan Virtual Charter. Oh, is he? Yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's in, in that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, you said Julie? Yes. Julie. So, yeah, definitely would love to connect. I can share my information and we can actually give you some great content and resources mm -hmm. that would be really helpful for your children and your family. So, I can give, I can, for the March 31st thing, if I had something to hand and say, hey, you guys I've got oh. flyers with me. So we're going to break this up so then y'all can connect. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Perfect, perfect. That's right. So, no, thank you guys once again for joining us. Um, happy Women's History Month. Yes. yes. Um, yes. The BMEA podcast will be back uh, IG Live two weeks, yes, on well, the 30th uh, to celebrate, continue to celebrate Women's History Month with, uh, with Silver Moore. Um, once again, just appreciate this conversation. Um, I am your host, Michael Payne. This is Dr. Lewis. This is the BMEA podcast. Take it easy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having right. us. It's a delight. You are now listening. You are to now listening. To you are now listening to the Black Male Educators Alliance podcast. podcast. Lifting our voices. Lifting our voices. Lifting our voices. Lifting our voices.